My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Have you ever reached for your cell phone during sex? Or felt your mind wander so much that the idea of even having sex or experiencing orgasm once you start barely even occurs to you? Have you longed for a deeper sense of connection with a partner or yourself? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so happy that you're listening during or not during sex. A few weeks ago, I took my Girl Boner book tour to New York City, where I hosted a live recording for this episode at The V Club with two wonderful guests, one of whom you regular listeners will definitely recognize. Together, we explored ways to deepen connection in our lives and relationships, common challenges in this arena, and ways to address them. We also welcomed a cameo from one of my favorite sexuality experts and another surprise returning guest I adore. Here's a hint. She and I recently gabbed about pets and relationships here. I also decided fairly last minute to do a reading from my Girl Boner book during the recording. And I'm going to be honest, I was excited but also really nervous. I had butterflies a-flapping, and I felt really vulnerable, especially once I let attendees vote on which story I would read. They picked a doozy, and the results were, well, I'll use that word again, vulnerable. Afterward, I wondered if I would have the guts to share that portion more publicly in this episode, or if it would even be smart to. I decided to take my own advice and embrace the vulnerability and include it. So thank you for being here to listen. The timing is really interesting because I spent last week in Grand Haven, Michigan, recording the Girl Boner audiobook with wonderful folks at Brilliance Publishing. Hands down, it was one of the coolest professional experiences I have had. I'm so excited for the audiobook to be released very soon. In contrast to that recording, the reading you'll hear from me today is a little bit like singing in the shower versus recording at a pro studio, but no disclaimers. Deep breath. I hope you find value in both, and I know you will love what the experts had to say and the really fun and funny bit from my surprise guest. For occasional behind-the-scenes fun and news, remember to sign up for occasional email extras at augustmclaughlin.com. And if you enjoy the podcast or my book, I would love to hear what you think by way of a review on iTunes, your Apple Podcast app, or Amazon. So a bit about the V-Club, the venue for the live podcast you're about to hear. It's elegant and intimate with mahogany floors and velvety turquoise chairs that are placed around these small round tables. They offer a range of classes and coaching options. And it was co-founded by one of the evening's guests, sex and relationship coach, Courtney Clemen. And the reason for starting the V-Club was really twofold. I think that... um, uh, dating, uh, dating and relationships have gotten more difficult in the modern day. So people have need more and more coaching about it. They have more and more questions. Um, and the second reason is there's not really a lot of um, fundamental sex education in the U.S. Um, that's done, uh, well, really anywhere. Um, we have classes Um, And they mostly deal with kink and BDSM, and that's wonderful. But the thing is, what about just the fundamentals of things, like the foundation of sex? I think that a lot of us just don't know how our bodies work. And we wanted to create um, a space where, you know, we can give these classes, but the space itself is not uh, like a sexually explicit type of a thing. It's, as you can see, it's kind of, you know, it's like a place where you can have afternoon tea. Yeah, yeah, and I love that it's, very private feeling and very intimate and welcoming. It's colorful, but from the outside, it's not like everyone come into the V Club. It's, it feels like you're entering a space where you can be safe and, and vulnerable, which is beautiful. Dr. Megan, would you share a bit about your journey and what led you into becoming a sex and relationship therapist? Um, so I get that question a lot. And yeah. um, 
you know, it's interesting. It initially wasn't not on my radar, but when I was in graduate school, um, one of my mentor actually, we looked at the psychometrics actually. It's not so sexy, I get it. But mm -hmm. so he put his name on everything. So it was the Derogata's sexual functioning inventory. <laughs> anyway, we started actually looking at uh, sexuality with traumatic brain injury and other clinical populations. And so it was actually when I came here to New York for my internship and was at Sloan Kettering. Like for me, sexuality was a way of giving back in terms of people who had a lot of loss, disability. I used to work in pain medicine and palliative care. And so um, I recognize that it's gonna sound strange, but it's true. Sex is almost like suicide. It's the kind of thing that people are so uncomfortable talking about. And when you allow and give somebody a safe space to share their feelings, it's like this huge exhale. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people are like, it's, it feels counterintuitive, but it's really, to me, how do you create that space and that opportunity for people to talk about these challenges that they have? Because it's the kind of thing, especially if you're in an intimate relationship, who are you going to talk to that? Who are you going to share those stories with, right? You might have your BFF, or, but the reality is more often than not, you want to protect your partner. And so you're not as likely to even share the challenges or the struggles you might be having sort of behind your closed doors. And so for me, Girl Boner and any opportunity that I have to create these conversations mm -hmm. and help people have these conversations because right now we live in a very pornified world mm -hmm. and yet despite more prolific um, exposure to sexuality, the reality is it's not getting any easier for couples to have those conversations. And so I find it, um, it's an amazing opportunity the more that we can just, like with Girl Boner, bring sex into the conversation. And you did such a brilliant job of making it very accessible. You're this brilliant clinician, but you have a way of uh, being very down to earth about that. And I just, I really appreciate that. I hear that from people all the time. They're like, Dr. Megan's in my head. And I, I, I heard her advice when I was doing it. It comes up a lot. So you're- If clients you're often asking. say, you know, when in the bedroom, right? Dr. Yeah. Megan said, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know if that's where I want to be showing up, but okay. I think it's going all right for them, so it's all good. Uh, Courtney, would you share a little bit about your roots and insects, Ed? Everyone heard my experience. What, what did you learn about sex and sexuality when you were a kid? That's interesting. My parents have never had a birds and the bees conversation with me, if you can believe it. But they're extremely open. Um, my parents are almost a little hippish. So, um, yeah, like yeah. a little bit of hippies. Mm -hmm. So they're completely open. And my, I, um, I had my first boyfriend at 16 and he was able to sleep over, but it was really, um, it was my own thing. It wasn't, I've never had that conversation. Yeah. In school, yeah. did you have, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, New Jersey area. I actually don't remember having sex ed in school. Yeah. It's not required in many states. Yeah. So, or needing to be medically accurate. And it does not need to be, yeah, right. it does not need to be medically or scientifically accurate. Yeah, which gives a lot of leeway. It's quite disturbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you, Megan? What did you learn early on? Well, it's interesting because I also don't recall that uh, sex ed in, for myself, but I remember my daughter even at third grade, I think they started it. And I was like, third grade like it felt early but to your point it was about getting your period right and so there yeah. was nothing about pleasure um and so i think that again i also came from a catholic a very conservative background in mm -hmm. fact when i w was becoming a sex therapist my my mom was like oh because it's about cancer you know like that that was a reason that i could uh it was she would be able to talk to her friends about it right mm. because there's definitely that sense of um it's interesting, there's just not a lot of conversation around it, and I certainly didn't grow up with that conversation. And I'm a quite provocative person, so you can imagine the conversations I've then subsequently created in my family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in this digital age, it's so awesome because we do have access to lots of different resources. We have several experts here with us today who provide you know, classes online, or you can listen to certain podcasts or read different articles, and people are finding information, which I know has like some pros and some cons, because how do you know if you're finding the good stuff? I wonder what you think about the effects of technology. I saw there was a study that was released, I think, in June, 
that indicated that 10% of couples have checked their phone during sex. Okay, now I'm really disturbed. <laughs> you hadn't heard about this one, okay. Yeah, and, and I've told that to people and sometimes they're very surprised and they're sometimes For like, yeah, fantasy yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's different. I mean, checking your phone is different from like, oh, I was looking for this sexy thing. You know, I think it's actually like my phone buzzed and I need to, I, I'm assuming, I'm guessing. I feel like the phones have made a difference in online dating just because they facilitated online dating and I yeah. think that completely changed the landscape of dating and relationships. I think in terms of uh, that study, uh, it's kind of awesome. I mean, that's hysterical. I don't think, though, that we suddenly have become more distracted during sex. I think we've, humans have always been distracted during sex in long-term relationships. It's just mm -hmm. now we, you know, we think about our phones, and maybe hundreds of years ago we thought about, I don't know, planting some, planting seeds and mm -hmm. growing plants. Um, but I think that, um, Th that problem with being distracted during sex and not being able to be in the moment, which really happens when you are typically when you're in a long-term relationship, and I think it happens more for women than men, it's a huge problem, right? It's a huge problem because once you do that, you no longer feel pleasure. And I also think that once that starts happening, it starts happening more and more and more where what we see in a lot of couples, that's all there is. I mean, they really have pleasure, uh, sex for the other person's pleasure and their mind is just elsewhere the mm. whole time. That's, I mean, that's something we try to help people with. And they can, you know, you, know, you really can make that go away, but it's a problem. Yeah, I think part of what I'm hearing you say is an attitude is that sense of anxiety. I think mm. the foundation of arousal is relaxation. And I think, you know, it is really an intimate, for most people, th that is that vulnerability and that place of intimacy. And I think that, um, a lot of people have a hard time settling down and being in the present moment. Um, because you were saying earlier that somebody's on their phone, I mean, literally I have people look up and they're like, oh my God, the ceiling needs to be painted or the laundry or, you know, okay. the ability to distract oneself and to be in one's head mm -hmm. um, is something I see a lot. And I think that really helping people with mindfulness practices and being present is certainly a big part of what we have to offer. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious what you think about the whole, do you have to quiet your mind down thing? Do you know Nan Wise? I think you do, a researcher, she's awesome. She, in her most recent study, was looking at whether or not you have to kind of calm your mind down before sex to have it be pleasurable, and she found that, that you don't, which I thought was really great, because like how most of us can't be like, I'm gonna just zen out and just meditate or get rid of all these thoughts, when sometimes it's actually, the pleasure might take over, right? I mean, mindfulness is really important. And then also knowing that if you are in a cluttery mental space, that maybe the sex could be the thing that helps you, you know, like a mindful activity kind of. What do you think? I mean, I work with a lot of people who have ADD and it's one place they focus, right? Like, because there's something about what, as you're saying, does really feel good and I think mm -hmm. You know this idea that we have a quiet mind you know it's definitely a myth right it's we have intrusive thoughts we have thoughts to the nature of our mind it's um whether or not you're saying is it a turn on or a turn off like one of the questions i often say to my clients we finger point a lot being like my sex life would be better if only my partner did or didn't do x y or z right and i'm like you realize anytime you're finger pointing three are coming right back at you right so I think it's incredibly important that we start to own our own sexual pleasure and all the ways in which we may be actively turning ourselves off long before our partner even comes into the room. And that equally, we have the opportunity to turn ourselves on and really empowering ourselves to do that. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the steps to do that, either one of you, to turning yourself on first? Sure. Um, so I was just actually talking to somebody in the audience about this earlier. One way you can make sex very different and more pleasurable to yourself and quite new is focus on what you feel instead of what your partner feels. So as an example, if you're doing something just to pleasure your partner, it could be you know, a BJ, it could be anything, if you just focus on your own sensations and not theirs, you actually completely place yourself in the moment and you feel things, right? Because whether you're using your hand or your mouth, you're getting sensations, right? You're getting feedback. And they will also feel pleasure because they will see you being in the moment. So that's a way to just place yourself there um, and make things different for yourself. So there are different mind hacks and tricks 
But once again, I think this is why it helps to talk to, you know, to Meg and talk to somebody like that because it's, uh, it's not something that we intuitively do. Sure, it's a really individual process. What do you think, Megan? What are some of, some of the things that tend to work to turn yourself on? Well, I think, again, it's interesting because sometimes, you, you know, as a sex therapist, we often give an exercise which we call sensate focus. And the whole idea is taking turns. What is it like to give? Like, and we start with like a central massage, so it's not explicitly erotic, because again, we live in a very goal-directed, performance-based, focused uh, culture. And so what gets lost is sex isn't about penetration or orgasm, as unfortunately the conversation is often around. It really is about giving and receiving pleasure. So we really try to get back to basics, but around that, I think intuitively, it's interesting for somebody to observe what is it like to give and what's it like to receive. Mm. Because more often than not, someone's more comfortable either in the giving role or in the receiving role. And, and sort of modification around that also is when, especially because I work with a lot of men who are so focused on giving their partner pleasure, but they feel so much anxiety around that that it impacts their arousal and their erections. And so one of the exercises we talk about is, can you touch her for your pleasure? that idea of consensual taking, but that in the allowing themselves to focus on their pleasure, again, arousal, with when you're relaxed, it's a reflex. And the biggest turn on for most people is seeing their partners turn on and their partner's arousal. And so helping people shift their mindset, focusing on pleasuring and giving themselves permission to feel pleasure, I think is an important step. Yeah, it's huge. I have a couple of questions from listeners I polled and some comments as well that tie into this. One of them, well, actually this one was on, uh, this one was on a Facebook poll and she was wondering about navigating a positive, really fulfilling sex life when you have kids and you have so many things to do. And she said that when they get together, all they really have time to do is sleep and they love each other and everything feels really comfortable, but she said she misses the passion and romance they had in the beginning, which was seven years ago. And also, is seven-year itch actually a thing? It is. <laughs> seven, exactly. There's, there's some research and data mm-hmm. around that, but what's interesting about that is I think, again, we live right now in a culture which I can think in many ways about consumption and it's this idea of with the internet and it, like, there's always a sense of there's better out there. And you've often heard me say, August, people say the grass is greener on the other side. I'm like, no, where you water it, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I think most people are not watering the grass of their relationships. Yeah. And um, so could there be a seven inch? Yeah, I think the nature of relationship is that, it, again, romantic love is meant to end. I mean, nobody wants to hear that, but the reality is the dopamine, the Like oxytocin. the beginning rush thing, right? Like the intoxicating, almost nauseating. It's that a, it's part the is love supposed cocktail, to, right? yeah, yeah. That part is meant out. to end, but that doesn't equal that there can't be a sustaining sort of fire. I mean, Helen Fisher, she's done a lot of data. They've looked at MRIs, couples even in 30 plus years into marriage, their brains still like light up in the being in love. So there's a lot of argument about the bonobos and you know monogamy right, and right. are we wired for it, yada, yada. But the reality is- Another episode. <laughs> another episode, but I'm just saying that we do know what's possible. And yeah. so for me, everybody, it's important they make their own choices, what feels right to them, but that for somebody in a relationship where it's not working, that they can start to have those difficult conversations. And when and if they're feeling really stuck or not able to have them on their own, that they do reach out to a psychologist or uh, could be a social worker or therapist, but somebody who has the training and specialization in sex and relationships. Yeah, yeah. What would you add to that, Courtney? So people, I mean, I want to follow up on that. People think that sex and relationships should just be amazing. Um, just, just on, you know, it's inertia, right? I mean, we started dating, it's all amazing, there's this cocktail and it's just gonna continue. And once it stops, it's like, oh, oh, you know, this is the wrong person for me, it's not my soulmate. But everything in life requires effort. And I don't mean that in a pessimistic way at all, it's just reality of it, right? We have to try to do better in school, we, we have to put in effort at work, we have to put in effort in our relationships and to sustain exciting sex lives, but it's like a very counterintuitive thing. And until we appro- start approaching love and relationships and sex that way, 
we, we're never going to be great at it. We're never going to enjoy it. And for sex, really, the effort, I think, is communication, right? I mean, that's, that's what it is. If you can openly tell your partner, this is what I want, um, and they can say, this is what I, you know, and this is what I want, and you just, you know, maybe come somewhere in the middle and try that on each other, that's, you're going to have great sex life. Yeah, I knew you were about to go for it. You know what I was about to say. <laughs> I, I would rather you say it, but I was like, mind meld, go for it. Because you know how I, yeah. um, anyway, because I think in our culture, you know, work is not a dirty word any more than sex is, right? And yep. yet, I think you're 100% right. The things we put effort into are the things we can count on. Yeah. And I think it really is time that we don't hear a word like work and think it's a bad thing. Right, it, it's about effort, and effort is what makes it reliable, and you can count on it, and I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have another question that's related. I'm a 32-year-old queer woman and feel lost since my ex broke up with me for a man. I suppose his gender isn't that important, except that it hurt more in a way. I felt I was never enough in the bedroom or good at getting her off, which she made clear, but I saw her point. Now when I meet someone and have strong feelings, I freak out and almost sabotage it. By the time we get physical, I don't feel like myself anymore. To me, I just heard such a, a message of feeling disconnected from, from herself and from, you know, she wants to get back to a place of, of confidence and trust. It's, there's a lot in there, um, but I wondered what you might might share? Um, well, I think it's important that I definitely also heard she lost confidence. And it's interesting because I've worked uh, with both men and women in circumstances like this. And often, um, in some ways, there's less jealousy because if it's the opposite gender, they can't compete with it. So they kind of have a better sense of like, it wasn't me, you know what I mean? Versus sometimes if it's the same gender, you're like, wait, what was it about this mm -hmm. person? So. It's interesting in this case, it's, it's different from that, but I think it speaks to the heart of the matter, which is, you know, Mount Diamond wrote this book around that sexual fluidity, right? It's not always about gender, it's often about person. And I think that it never, we're hardwired that rejection and abandonment just feel bad. Mm. Like it's in our nervous system. And I kind of joke, but we're mammals at the end of the day. So the reality is, um, I think for anyone going through that sense of rejection or a partner chooses to leave, um, it's gonna rock your world, right, at the foundation. And so that's where reaching out and getting help and reconnecting with who she is and what she has, um, because, you know, there's only one us. And we all uniquely have our own gifts and talents and we never wanna lose track of uniquely what we have to offer. Yeah, beautifully said. Yeah. What would you add to that? Yeah, I was also going to say this is not an issue with gender. It's a, anybody would have felt that way. If somebody leaves you, it just doesn't feel good. If someone tells you that you're bad in bed and belittle you, that alone is a huge problem. Um, it's just, I mean, that you, you definitely should talk to someone because even if the relationship doesn't work out, belittling someone is a huge red flag that your partner is manipulative. So, and it's, you know, you just have to talk to someone and get it out of your system. She's having self-worth issues and it's very common and uh, it's very sad. Yeah. Yeah, and she should, she should definitely chat with someone. Yeah. It's not her at all. She's, I'm sure she's wonderful. Mm. And she will find another partner that will appreciate all her, everything that she has to offer. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like sometimes we have to hear it from somebody else who doesn't even know us. And you also probably helped a lot, many more people because inevitably, never have I gotten a question that that person was the one person who experiences it. I feel like a lot of these things are so universal. What are some of the most common questions that you hear, Megan, in your work? Um, well, I often hear the, I've lost my desire, or did I marry the wrong one, or the pain around a sexless marriage. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but as much as I would like to say that as we're having this conversation, people would be proactively having them, and our culture prevention doesn't sell. It's the heart attack, right, that brings somebody into treatment. And in my case, it's the crisis. And there's actually research based on the work of John Gottman. It's seven years into conflict before couples come into therapy. Yeah. 
So my hope is that anybody hearing this realizes, A, what's normal about conflict, it's kind of meant to happen, but also that no one suffers in silence. And if you're not figuring it out together, that you're on the front end realizing these are relationship skills and you can learn them through coaching, you can learn them in therapy, but that don't suffer in silence. Yeah, yeah. I know, Courtney, perfectionism is something that you really like to address. That's a toughie. I think a lot of people relate to having that pressure on themselves to, to be perfect. Mm -hmm. What are some of the steps, especially in the context of sexuality and relationships, to, to moving past that or managing it better? Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of um, people come in. We, have a, we actually hold um, a happy hour every Monday. And so women, a lot of women just come in and they just chat about usually dating because in New York City, dating is a big thing. And, um, and what I notice is it's the same pattern. We approach life and sex and relationships with a list of things. It's a very defined list of things. It's a long list. And we must have them all, right? It's like we have to check off all the boxes. Um, it's essentially another way to think about it is, is that we have very specific expectations for what must happen, how it must happen, and when it must happen. Now, the reality of life, it just doesn't work. I feel like I keep saying this on this podcast. Life just doesn't work that way. Um, sex is not natural. Relationships are not, you know, not intuitive, I should say. Relationships are not necessarily, they require work. Um, and we can't approach a partner with a list of expectations. Now, obviously, you should have some sort of idea of what makes you happy. But I always tell women, focus on the feeling that this person gives you. Forget about the checklist. Now, maybe this person does this or that with their life. But if they make you feel good, you probably want to have a second date. So I think it's that seeking of perfection in our partners and also in ourselves, right? Because when we are searching for something in our partners, that means that we think about the same thing for ourselves. Um, I think that just, it's, it's a philosophy of life that simply makes your life very difficult. Mm. Going with the flow and stopping and not controlling the situation all the time. If you look around then, I mean, your life may be quite amazing. You'll be meeting people. Maybe you'll go on a date and it's not your love, you know, your love interest, but maybe you'll just have this amazing conversation and you'll just, you know, you'll learn something. I mean, life, life is, um, um, Life is kind of a game, and if you approach it that way, you actually end up getting the results that you want from it. And when you control, you just don't. Mm. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. We have a surprise extra guest tonight. Uh, so what I would love to do is one of you can trade seats with the gorgeous woman in the back in green, and one of you could just slide your chair over there so you can take a break so you don't have to just sit up here while we do this next segment. And, and throughout the rest of this in general, if you guys want to, if you have a question for any of the four of us, we will open it up to audience Q&A here as well. Oh, you're twins, that's so lovely. It's like meant to be. We just swapped out one green for the other green. We're Here's your, greens. we're switching greens. Which is now a phrase. It's a phrase, have a seat. I have to introduce you all to one of the dearest people in my life. This is Heidi Master Giovanni. She is one of the kindest, most brilliant people I know. And she has a book that released today. And the theme ties in so well, I think, not only because her main character, Lala Pettibone, which, what a fabulous name, is, it, it's a, she has a sex drive, and she's funny, and she's all these things, and she's not 20 or 30 or 40. Like, she's, and we need those stories, so I thank you for that. And I would love if you would be so kind to tell us a little bit about the book and share a bit. Would you read us a little? I'm so piece? honored and delighted to be asked, and I'm so happy to be here in this gorgeous, gorgeous space. It is so welcoming, it's so cozy, it's so wonderful. Um, August is one of my closest friends, and I, I know I'm not telling tales out of school when I say that you and your husband met in our backyard and got married in our backyard 10, 10 years ago? 10 years oh my ago. God, that's a, yeah. And our ancient beagle was the ring bearer in a little stroller with the That was when I ugly back. cried. She came rolling out yeah. and, oh my God, I can't talk about her. And, and you know, it was, it, was, it was so lovely, it was so wonderful. And um, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me and, and wonderful to listen. And I, I 
I've been on the show before, so it's so great to meet you, Dr. Megan. It's so great to meet you in person. Um, uh, August and I have the same publisher, uh, Amberjack Publishing. We love you. Mm -hmm. And um, Lala Pettibone's Act Two is the first book in the Lala series. This is the sequel. It's Lala Pettibone Standing Room Only. Um, a lot of people ask, is Lala like you? And it, she's incredibly like me because we are, we are very similar people. We have, we have new people. Do we have enough chairs here? This was, this was. <laughs> Your perfect timing. Yeah. Actually, actually, Mike was, Mike was texting me about getting them in. Oh, he was? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. It Yay, worked. they're here. It worked. Thank you so right much. Right back in. It's Thank good. you. Thank you so much. Um, I was I was telling about my book that that came out today. Um, Lala and I were both widowed very young. She was she was widowed in her early forties, as was I. Um, uh, spoiler alert: I've been married to my second husband. Um, this year it will be longer than I was married to my first husband. So that's that's quite a bit of a milestone. Uh, in in. In Act Two, Lala has to start her life over again even more because some very difficult things happen to her in the city, that in New York City, in this fabulous city that hopefully are funny, and um, including being assessed forty thousand dollars in her condo, which is only funny if it's not you. And um, she moves to Manhattan from Manhattan Island to Manhattan Beach, and she meets a wonderful veterinarian. And I always say the only distinction between that wonderful veterinarian and my second husband is that my second husband is a musician, so they're they're slightly different, but they're both great guys. When it starts to get very, 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 very serious between them, and they're living together, and they start to talk about marriage, the utter and complete terror of him dying, as her first husband did. Is, is overwhelming for Lala, and that's where we find her in this, this uh, little moment of an excerpt. Um, and also, since I'm, I get to decide what happens to Lala's life, her book is being turned into a movie. Yeah. Lala is coincidentally yeah. almost exactly at, like Heidi. Yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... And books get made into movies. It's going to happen. When you get to... Thank you, darling. When you get to decide what happens. Um, so uh, here is a little excerpt from the second, second Lala Pettibone novel. I am terrified, Lala thought. I am utterly and entirely and unreasonably and irrationally and completely understandably and just about constantly terrified. She was sitting in her new production office with Zoe and Eliza, the night before had ended with Lala and David having utterly delightful sex. Wow, Lala said. They were on the couch wrapped in a blanket. Our first sex as an engaged to be engaged couple. Very excellent sex, I might and just did add. They put their sweatpants back on and Lala put her flannel shirt back on and David got a sweatshirt to put on because his flannel shirt had been torn open. And they went downstairs and knocked on Geraldine and Monty's door. They had clearly interrupted Geraldine and Monty while the older couple was not asleep in bed. And Geraldine and Monty invited them in. Lala told them she and David were engaged to be engaged. And Geraldine said, what the hell does that mean? Don't tell me, I don't wanna know. And now Lala was in her production office and it was taking every bit of strength she could muster not to hyperventilate as she sat at a small table with Zoe and Eliza and they all ate the sandwiches they had gotten at the best sandwich place ever, which Lala had been introduced to by Monty's daughter, Helene, shortly after she moved to Southern California, and which was right next door to the office and was a major factor in Lala deciding on the office space she chose. Sometimes it's just easier to not think about certain things, Lala said. Sometimes, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes it's less lonely to have a boyfriend who lives thousands of miles away because you can't really miss them and obsess about them dying because they're kind of not really there anyway. The subject of the lunchtime discussion up until a moment before Lala's pronouncement had been selecting locations for the film. Are you okay, Zoe asked? Seriously, is this the best tomato brie? Because I substitute brie for mozzarella and olive tapenade on a baguette in the universe or what? I'm great, why? Because that was like your 12th non sequitur today, Eliza said. And no offense, but you look kind of weird. Not unattractive at all, just weird. Oh, okay, Lala said. Hey, you know what happened to me yesterday? I was at the Beverly Center, and I wanted to check out a book at the Beverly Hills Library, which is ridiculously gorgeous, isn't it? And so I walked there on Burton Way, because I love the architecture on Burton Way, and it's such a lovely, wide boulevard. It feels like you're in Europe. 
And this guy driving a Bentley pulls up next to me as I'm walking and rolls down his window and says, how much? And I look at him in utter and entirely understandable confusion and say, pardon? And he says, how much? Nothing kinky, just straight missionary position. And I think I must be losing my mind. And I say with visible astonishment, I'm not a hooker. I'm a pedestrian. <laughs> the nerve of that guy, huh? <laughs> Zoe and Eliza were staring at Lala with what she was happy to recognize as sympathy and understanding. Lala smiled to their, at their reaction because she always loved it when people shared her outrage. I don't get it, Eliza said. Why were you walking? Why? What do you mean, why was I walking? You walked from the Beverly Center to the Beverly Hills Public Library, Zoe said. Why would you do that? <laughs> why are you both asking me why I walked, Lala demanded. It was a beautiful day. It's a beautiful boulevard. Why wouldn't I walk? Zoe and Eliza looked at each other and shook their heads. I can see why the guy was confused, Eliza said. Yeah, Zoe agreed. Are you kidding me, Lala said? Didn't you two walk when you were in college, like a lot? Across campus and everywhere else and stuff? Sure, Zoe said. Sure, Eliza echoed. But that was in Connecticut. Yeah, Zoe said. This is LA. Oh, for heaven's sake, Lala huffed. Never mind. Forget I said anything. Let's get back to work. Lala did her best to focus on the tasks at hand in the office for the rest of the day. She went to the gym after work, and when she got home, Geraldine was tending to her lovely, drought-resistant garden that took up large swaths of the courtyard of the fourplex. Are you okay, she asked when Lala opened the front gate and entered. I'm great, Lala said. Why? You look weird. Should I be worried about you? No, no, not at all, Lala said. Yes, Lala thought. You should. <laughs> Thank you so much, Heidi. Before we go on, would you like to share a thought about deepening connection as somebody who has had two loves of her life? I, I absolutely would. And just a little sidebar, our most recent um, girl boner was about pets. And I remember your comments with great delight, Dr. Megan. That was a great question. Um, what to do question. when the animals interfere with your sex animals, life? Animals, kids, it's, you know, it's, yeah. But I, I, the thing that I'm reminded of with, with having two great relationships, yeah. when I met my first husband, he had this wonderful, grumpy old cat. And that just made me love him more. And I was terribly allergic to the cat. And when I went to the allergist, he said, you have to get rid of the cat, you're out allergic. And my response was, that's not going to happen. That's not what I do. I'm, a, I'm an animal welfare advocate. That's never going to happen. Tell me what I have to do. And I was recounting the story to Dennis, who was my first husband. And I didn't get, before I could get to the part where I said, and of course I told him that wouldn't happen, Dennis said, when he heard you'll have to get rid of the cat, said, well, that's not going to happen. He was here first. And that made me, <laughs> but that made me love him more because that's loyalty. That's loyalty. Mm -hmm. Tom is terribly allergic. When I met Tom, my second husband, I had three cats. He's terribly allergic. The, 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 veter the veterinarian, listen to me. The allergist said, you're allergic to nothing but cats. And his response was, I'm not giving my girlfriend that ultimatum because I know what she's going to pick. It's like, yeah, <laughs> the cats were here first. So for me, August, and not just in romantic relationships, but as I get older especially, had a big old milestone last year. And it was great. It's great. It's great to be 60. I love 60. 60 is the new 60. Um, you know, um, yeah. thank you. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I, I need to be around people who share my values. And my biggest value in you, and I've talked about this a lot, is kindness. And if I can disagree with anyone about anything, as long as he's come, he or she's coming from a base of kindness. Yeah. And that, to me, deepens the relationship because mm. there's the trust that this is a kind person. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. Thank you. That. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank and congratulations book. on Girl Boner. Thank you. Yay. So I promised Heidi I would do one more little reading. Yeah, it's my favorite but, reading. Okay, so she's yeah. already decided which one yeah. it is. Yeah, I was going to do like a vote. It's not, okay, go ahead. Okay, how about I vote and then you can, okay. you can put your foot down. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because I love yeah. you and it's your book The birthday. Electoral College will decide. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The popular vote will not count. Yeah. <laughs> so the two stories I have for you to choose from are The Orgasm That Changed My Life and uh, My Brain on Orgasm, which 
has to do with an orgasm MRI experience. So who would like option number one? Okay, option number two. All right, so I guess I'm going with Heidi's pick. The ones have it. Yes, you're welcome to stay here or be wherever you want. I might go back there because that's a really hot thing you're reading and I may just uh, have to fan myself down. Thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Heidi. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was the loveliest intro to my story. Thank you, Heidi. You can fan yourselves as you like. Uh, so this is from chapter one of my book, and I'm going to read most of it. The orgasm that changed my life. I never imagined that a routine, if somewhat melancholy day, would end in one of the most beautiful and powerful lovemaking experiences of my life. The kind that leaves one elated, intoxicated, and swimming in grateful tears. My husband was away after all, nor had I imagined that one sexual experience could change my life as I knew it, leaving me in an enigmatic ocean of what ifs. But that is exactly what happened. I'd recently transitioned from my longtime modeling and acting career to full-time writing, and my husband of one year was away working long hours on a commercial, a scenario to which I'd grown accustomed. I'd spent much of the day working on a story, an hour or two walking my deaf American bulldog, and a while tidying our home, okay, 10 minutes, let's be real, and cooking the simplest curry I could conjure. All evening, I'd been trying to lure myself away from a hefty case of the blahs. I wasn't clinically depressed, I know, because I had been there. I just wasn't feeling particularly happy, as though my normally high-voltage light bulb had fizzled to dim. Making matters worse, the lonely gap longed not only to be filled, but coddled and cured by another. While I adored my husband and having someone to miss, that needy, pining feeling had to go. You should feel strong and fulfilled on my own, I told myself, whole. Only I wasn't, not that night. I didn't have a good reason to feel low, other than being someone prone to such lapses. I also lacked the strength and fortitude to pull myself out of it. I should write more and stronger, I told myself. Getting lost in story was the best medicine I'd found. If writing didn't remove my sadness, it usually lessened or distracted me somewhat from it. But that night, my thoughts were fixated elsewhere. Was I merely insecure, I wondered? No, I was definitely insecure, I concluded. But was that all? As though on cue, my cell phone buzzed, alerting me to a text message. I leapt for it, hoping it was my husband, a serendipitous, I'm done and coming home early message. Nope. Hey, babe, you around tonight? Chad. My heart swelled at the thought of him as I stared longingly at the phone. The sexy, successful actor and I had met on one of my first nights out in the Hollywood scene and had shared explosive chemistry. Had I still been single, I would have responded, met up with him, and drowned my emptiness in cocktails and conversation until pheromones took over and we ended up naked and entangled in his Hollywood Hills home. But I was married, happily so, and honestly, didn't feel the need or desire for someone else. The distraction, escape, and release such an interlude would bring, however, I could have used by the truckload. I entertained the notion for a few moments, more daydream fantasy style than intentioned field, which only made me feel worse. So flipping alone. I'm pathetic, I reminded myself. Bridget Jones and her diary had nothing on me. It's too bad I barely drink. Get over yourself, I thought, hitting delete on Chad's message. You have so much to be grateful for. Count your damn blessings. You'll feel better tomorrow. Just breathe. Hoping for distraction, I flipped the TV on and scrolled through programs that failed to tantalize, then perused Netflix. The automated service suggested, I'm not kidding, Diary of a Nymphomaniac. <laughs> if there's a god, she has a serious sense of humor. Heck, I figured, why not? Minutes into the Spanish film about a young woman with an in intense sex drive, I wondered if there had ever been anyone as masochistic as me. The very raw and real sensation scenes only highlighted my desperation, adding thoughts of, I wish I were sleeping to the mix, if only to escape the day. Why didn't my husband struggle with such yearning when I was away? At least, he never seemed to. And being the nosy, uh, inquisitive type, I'd certainly asked. He missed me, sure, but seemed less that word again, needy. 
Perhaps my couple of years of sexually free, explorative singlehood between relationships hadn't been enough. His sexual history was far more diverse than mine, after all, having been an established musician and numerous years older than me. His confidence and experience were evident in his every move between the sheets, and I gratefully benefited. While some of that could have derived from natural forte, and I like to think our mutual chemistry, I imagine that he'd learned a heck of a lot of along the way. So many experiences. So many women. <laughs> oh, no, 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 ew. Was I jealous? As if needy hadn't been enough. I began picturing previous women he dated, then imagined many more, groupies throwing themselves at him after concerts, erotic film-worthy one-night stands, three threesomes in hipster hotels I had no idea if he had ever partaken in. Oddly, I didn't care who the women were, whether they were cool or gawky or erotic or timid or lovely or plain. I wasn't jealous of his partners, I realized, but of his comparably vast experience I would never have. The more I pondered his sexual escapades, the more I craved him and his body to relish every escapade he had ever had. I wanted him to show me, to describe every sensual detail, turn me on even more, and carry me into erotic ecstasy. In my mind, I played make-believe clips of him with lovers like a rock star porn film, wishing I could edit myself in. Damn it, why couldn't he be here? My hand moved involuntarily between my legs, a place I had never explored solo. Yes, you read that right. In my 30 years of life, I had never masturbated and had no idea how relatively uncommon that was. Through the crotch of my thin cotton pants, I felt the heated swell of my pussy, its seemingly unquenchable want. I rubbed it for a frustrated moment, wishing like hell doing so would make me come, but rubbing had never done much for me, not without a firm penis tucked inside. A firm penis, if only. Wait, the toy. The epiphany replaced my angst with giddy curiosity. As a gag wedding gift, a girlfriend of mine had given us a dildo set. We hadn't used it, but enticed by the thought, had stashed it away under the heading, maybe someday. If I couldn't have a hard cock of flesh, a prosthetic seemed like the next best thing. <laughs> what was the harm in trying? Feeling like a nervous teenager, I raced to the closet and pulled the sex toy kit from the wooden chest where we'd stored it. Rifling through layers of quilts and sweaters, my hand fell on the firm package. <laughs> Simply touching it added vigor to my want and a happy curve to my lips. I pulled the kit out, then removed its casing, staring at the dildo in awe. The hot pink plastic penis glowed in the dark, <laughs> given preemptive light exposure, but no way would I waste time waiting. Besides, where it was going was lit up plenty already. I climbed onto the bed, clutching the toy like a newfound treasure. As I peeled away my clothing, I glimpsed my reflection in the wall mirror. Blush crept up my neck and into my cheeks as though I had been lost in passionate kisses. Salivating, I watched my chest move up and down, marking labored breathing. My back arched involuntarily, pushing my rear outward in kitty-like play. Everything about me seemed to have gone from frumpy and sad to titillating and turned on. If I could have kissed myself lips on lips, twin tongues exploring, I would have. I wasn't attracted to myself, but to how it felt and appeared to be so gloriously aroused. I couldn't recall the last time I'd felt so uninhibited and alive. Wishing I had a man, any man, my man, there to push up against, envelop, and ride. I said, screw it, then screw it, I did. <laughs> when I pressed the tip of the dildo to my clitoris, chilled rushed over my skin. I was wet, really wet, and visibly swollen. In the mirror, I could see my vaginal lips bulging outward like fiery rosebuds blooming. I slid the toy inside me, moaning as delight spread through my body. I was making love to no one in midair. Sublime. Overwhelmed by the need to grab on to someone or something, I piled two pillows on top of each other and straddled them. I rocked to and fro on Mr. Pillow, the dildo like a ready-to-launch rocket inside of me, my urge to climax so strong I could barely breathe. Within minutes, it happened, the thing I had never deemed myself capable of. Pleasure seemed to shoot through every cell in my body so hard that I released an uncontrollable wail. Then I crumpled to the bed, tears flooding my cheeks. I did it, I thought. I really did it. 
I had made myself come. I'd masturbated. Desperate to share the enlightening experience with someone, I phoned my husband, like, you know, any rational person. <laughs> oh my god, that's, uh, wow, amazing, he said, laughing in a tickled and odd way. Appreciation evident in his I'm at work tone. That conversation would go down as one of our favorites of all time. That night, I struggled to sleep. Amid my euphoric, near-intoxicated state, my thoughts swirled back through my youth and early adulthood. So many years sans ma masturbation, how would my life have been different had I learned the art of self-stimulation and pleasure years ago? Profoundly, I deduced. No question about it. I recalled my high school boyfriend and first sex partner, Aiden, by that time, it had been ingrained in me that people were to be in love and more importantly married before having sex, AKA what I understood to be intercourse. Ideally to make a baby I had no intention of having. I wasn't even terribly attracted to Aiden when we had met, but he had taken an interest in me for reasons I couldn't quite fathom given my dwindling sense of self-worth and I was intrigued. Once our relationship grew physical, the first time we had sex he said, you know this means we have to get married, right? I developed a sincere fondness. Now, I wondered, for what? We'd broken up countless times only to end up back together, caught up in a makeup sex marathon. Loved ones had told me numerous times he'd seemed controlling. Had he been? From my first time on, sex had seemed like necessary medicine, a way to release the tension in my body and brain, to help me think and feel more clearly. Even before I'd overcome long-standing body image and self-esteem problems, though granted, for years, I refused to make love with the lights on. I recalled the many times I'd struggled to focus in classes through adolescence, not because of sexual cravings, but what I'd called brain fog. My then undiagnosed ADHD wouldn't have been the only issue. Even if it had been, talk about groovy medicine. Meanwhile, I obsessed over boys, whether or not they would find me attractive, assuming they most certainly did not because I felt anything but. My declining self-esteem and poor body image seemed inseparable. One fueled the other like a snowball careening down a hill, growing in size and velocity. What if I'd masturbated then? Would the sun have shone through the fog even somewhat? Would I have had a taste of the relaxation and empowerment I was experiencing now? Felt lonely, felt less lonely, less desperate, more complete? I consider my relationship history, which my mother has jokingly compared to a very interesting movie. Throughout my 20s, starting post-breakup with Aiden, I tried to remain single for a while to feel happy and strong on my own because it seemed like the healthy thing to do, yet each stint ended in a hormonally charged new beginning with Mr. Seemed Alright. I leapt from one serious relationship to another, most ending in a tumultuous breakup. Within each partnership, I seemed to lose valuable parts of myself. Only afterward in my stints of singleness did some level of empowerment find me. You can get out, it's cool. I knew she had to leave, so thank you for coming. But inevitably, horniness went out, and I would end up back in a relationship, because obviously, if we were going to have sex, we had to at least think we were headed toward marriage. Like mirrors, I attracted guys as insecure as I was or who thrived on my deficiencies. Would I have forced myself into relationships if I had been inclined to address my sexual urges myself? Certainly, masturbation wasn't a substitute for intimate relationships, even as a rookie, that was clear. Regardless, I sensed multitudinous benefits. Virtually the only time I hadn't craved sex and sought it somewhat frequently took place when I was modeling in New York City and Europe in my late teens. Work compared to using sex appeal to sell, ironically. Then my unaddressed ADHD-related depression and body image issues had transformed into anorexia, a disease that robs the sufferer of her femininity, every curve and sexual want, and one that dang near took my life. Would all of that had happened had I been more connected with myself sexually? I didn't know, but I sensed a significant correlation. More questions accumulated in my mind like flakes in a dizzy snow globe. Where had my sexuality begun? At birth? With menstruation? I flashed back to my mom's You're a Woman Now speech, which I had stomped away from, refusing to listen. With Aiden losing my virginity, it certainly hadn't started in sex ed class. From where had my beliefs around my sexual behaviors and capabilities derived? I looked down at my body, my naked body that night, trembling pink and postcoital and saw for the first time, perhaps, the precious castle I'd been living in, yet had long neglected. 
making love with myself, dusted off a layer of dislike, revealing authenticity, inner beauty, and potential. My sparse tears turned into soft weeping as it hit me. Here I was at age 30, finally learning to fully love my body and by extension, myself. Thank you. a little longer than I realized it was going to be, so I skipped a part, which you can find in the, in the, in the chapter, in the actual book. Uh, thank you for being there for me to share that. That's the first time I've read it uh, for anybody besides my dog, who's heard the whole book like three times. <laughs> like I said, vulnerable, but I'm glad I read that. You can also hear a rough draft of much of that story in an early Girl Boner Radio episode, or of course, find it in full in my book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment. It's available on Amazon and most everywhere books are sold. At the end of the recording, I opened up to the audience for questions. When no one really seemed compelled, I inadvertently put someone on the spot. Cindy Narnell is here. She is an incredible, incredible expert. I interviewed you last year, I think it was. And you are mesmerizing. I love your voice. I love what you share. You're quoted once in my book talking about mindfulness, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And you talked about some of the patterns that you see related to mindfulness and kind of that monkey mind that happens. I wonder if you'd speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can't remember what I said on your podcast. It was some time ago. I feel a little uh, put on the spot now. Um, anyway. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I'll be fabulous. Just give me a second. <laughs> 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 you uh, <laughs> um, yeah, look, the monkey mind, it, it's a thing, and it's a thing that uh, affects people of all ages and, and orientations and, and descriptions. It's, it's, it is part of being human. It's, it's not necessarily something that we can turn off. Yeah. And even though I've been um, meditating and masturbating with gusto for many, many years, I still have not been able to turn it off completely. So it's more about being, um, being attentive to the fact that it happens and then being attentive to the fact that you have a choice as to whether or not you're gonna listen to that or focus on what you're doing. Mm. And even though I am a very strong advocate of um, you know, very robust sexuality in all its forms, including unconventional relationships and all of those extra delicious things, which is not everybody's cup of tea, but um, it is still a thing that it requires people to Put your attention on your intention. Mm. If you want to connect, and we're talking about deep connections tonight, if you want to have a deep connection, you have to make it a priority. You have to make it an intention. And as Dr. Megan was saying, these things don't just happen by magic. In, you know, Good relationships do not just drop out of the sky. They are grown, they are cultivated. I often use an analogy like a, taking care of a pet or a plant or a child even. If you don't nourish it, what's gonna happen to it? Yeah. It's just gonna perish. And because we f tend to forget that relationships are alive, we, we are very conditioned to believe that relationships are these static monoliths that once you get married or once you find the one or once you find whatever it is that you're looking for and you find this thing, then you think, oh, well, I've done it now. Now I can, now I can relax. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, well, I mean, yes, you can, of course you can relax, but the truth is, is that you still must be paying attention. You must be attentive. That doesn't mean you need to be neurotic. It just means you need to be focused and you need to think, how can I nourish this relationship? Or another way of looking at it is, what does this relationship need to be nourished? So you take it away from what do I have to do to what does the relationship need? Because different relationships will require different things. Mm -hmm. So I think in terms of mindfulness and deepening connection, the biggest thing is keeping your mind on the job and when your mind wanders off the job which invariably it will um, remember that you have the choice to bring it back and if you do then that's great and if you don't recognize that there are going to be consequences so, yeah, 
Thank you so much for sharing that. Anybody? Yeah. Thank you again, Cindy and Megan and Courtney, for sharing your brilliance. Learn more at cindydarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com, greatlifegreatsex.com, and thevclub.com. Huge thanks also to Gaston Beltran for recording and running sound for the event with his wonderful assistant. Gaston is also an awesome musician, and I asked him to share a bit of that magic for you all to hear today. As we roll out, enjoy a clip from In Between the Sides featuring Bria Jean and learn more at GastonBeltranMusic.com. Close has never been so far Feels like meters turn to miles Is this virtual world reality? Or the distance never mind Wow.